Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet JT Woolahan. JT is an analytics consultant for a major government contractor. His work includes leading big data analytics and natural language processing delivery efforts. He also, he's also the author of Manning's uh, author, oh, sorry. He's also the author of Mastering Large Data Sets with Python and forthcoming textbook on sport analytics. JT, welcome to the show. Great, thanks for having me. Man, the intro there I, I struggled with, but we're just gonna, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm only human there. So anyway, I'm super excited. For a couple of weeks now, so you can blame so, it on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so when did you first become interested in data science and analytics? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure how long I've been doing this, I'd have, probably have to have to look at my own resume and count. Um, but I've, I've been in the field for a while. Um, you know, I, I was, I had an interest in it right out of, right out of undergrad, which is, you know, quite a few years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was in industry for a while doing, you know, uh, uh, things unrelated to, to analytics proper. Um, I went back to school to do a PhD and then, um, you know, left school to, to do uh, analytics, left the PhD to do, do analytics in industry. Um, mm. My like deep background is in, um, you know, I was a web developer for probably like a decade. Um, and then, yeah, so that's why analytics delivery, right? So it's a combination of the doing and the implementing and also like the, the analytics and the data science piece, so. Yeah, I, it seems like a natural progression to go from web development to like uh, data analytics, yeah. like what you were doing. I think it's a, I, for me, I think it's a really useful transition. Um, I see a lot of people coming out now who just want to do the analytics piece. And you know, sometimes I, I worry about how far their careers can go if they only understand the the analytics piece of the puzzle. Because at the, at the end of the day, when you're building analytics systems, um, you know, the analytics are only as useful as your customers can, can take advantage of them. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got a great analytic, but no way to deploy it, it's not worth much. Um, well, yeah. on the other side, right, you have a front end developer who doesn't need to know anything about analytics and, and they can be super valuable in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, yeah. there's certainly a, a mismatch between the, you know, the sexiness of, analytics and how uh, useful those skills are. Hmm. Yeah, that's good to, good to keep in your back pocket there. If you can master both of those superpowers, you'd be a force yeah. to reckon with. <laughs> yeah, if, if anybody out there has a master of both of them, give me a call. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Uh, what would you consider your first success with extracting insight from large data sets? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, when I was, when I was doing my PhD, I did a lot of like web scale uh, research, uh, mm -hmm. research on web scale data. So that's probably where I, I really cut my, my teeth on big data. I mean, I, I was fortunate because in your PhD, you have a lot of time uh, on your hands, right? So the, the downside is that all that time gets filled up by doing your PhD, but you do have quite a, quite a bit of time on your hands. Yeah. So I had a few years to really learn all of the ins and outs of 
big data processing and all the technologies and and you know implement them you know myself and and stand them up and you know I was at Indiana University and they've got access to supercomputers and they've got um, they had you know awesome clusters for us to use uh, so really fortunate for all the resources that IU provided um, and the ability to to use those resources and really learn how to do you know really really big web scale data there. Yeah, that's that sounds amazing to uh, have those resources at your fingertips and the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's <Right>. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you there is this like existential, you know, woe hanging over you the whole time. It's like, am I actually doing anything useful? But uh, yeah, you, know, you kind of just drown yourself in the work and try to ignore it. it. Is that like a trust the process type thing, or do you just have to kind of? be content with like, okay, I'm going to have spurts of progress. I need yeah. to allow myself to kind of branch out and go research these areas. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's different for, for everyone. The people who I've seen succeed the most are people who are just happy where they are. Um, so you can't, you can't focus too much at the, the light on the end of the tunnel. Um, you really want to just like, you know, keep your vision really close to where you are right now and, mm-hmm. and try to enjoy what you're doing and try to take pleasure in, uh, in, in the grind. Uh, cause it is, it is a big grind, but, um, you know, it's, it's good. It's the, you know, if you get into one program where they, you know, you're in the middle of the Midwest cost of living is low compared to, you know, coastal cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not getting paid great, but you're getting paid enough. Um, and you, the only responsibilities you have are to show up every day and do research and, and um, you know, kind of push the frontiers of human knowledge. So if you can, you know, enjoy that and that alone, it's, it's good, a uh, good life. Yeah. Cool. That's, that's awesome insight there. Um, what were the drivers behind the topics that you chose to include in mastering large data sets with Python? Yeah. So working with, um, analysts in industry working with um you know really really smart data scientists while i was doing my phd um i i found that one of the topics that was getting looked over the most was how to scale up uh, solutions to problems right so hmm. i had you know i had a lot of experience working with with web scale data web scale problems and i had you know developed a like an internal like toolkit and framework for thinking about how to attack those problems and when i would work with others i found that they didn't have that solution so they would be able to solve problems um, at like a scale that they could see so if they could you know open up a file and visualize what was going on they could analyze the data um, if they could you know process something on their laptop they could analyze the data but the second they had to move to a place where they had to do cluster computing or, you know, really big data computing, um, they didn't know how to program around the problem anymore. They didn't know how to break apart the problem into parallelizable pieces, into scalable pieces, into distributable pieces, right? Um, and a lot of the ways that they attacked the problem individually or originally weren't appropriate when you brought it into those new spaces. Mm. Uh, so they, they would program and, you know, very state sensitive ways and that doesn't translate super well to to parallelization and and distribution of processes so i really wanted to teach a style of programming that i thought would scale better um, and i would help people who were in analytics 
um, whether they're analytics developers, data scientists, uh, just normal scientists, um, think about how to break down their problems into code and then how they can use um, primarily Python to scale up those solutions, right? So how can you design your code so that it runs you know, on your laptop and then scale nicely all the way up into you know, massively distributed Hadoop clusters? Hmm. That was the goal. Yeah, and I, I was paging through the book with my uh, O'Reilly uh, subscription. It's an amazing, amazing resource. But um, so, so you, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly and kind of based on what I was looking at, you're incrementally kind of walking the user through like, okay, you can start out small, but by the end, you're basically working with like Amazon compute resources. Yeah, so, exactly. Okay, that's awesome. For some follows... Mm -hmm. And that follows the workflow that most you know, analytics folks are used to. Okay. You get, you get thrown a task and it's like, okay, we need the solution in a, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever your sprint length is. You put up together a prototype and then they're like, okay, this is good. Now scale this up to the size of our actual production data set. And mm -hmm. you're like, okay, well, production workflows are different. So if you have to refactor the whole solution, you're not going to be able to get that done. If you can just scale it out, scale it up, take the code, you know, maybe put it in. So if you build it out in a, you know, functional map and reduce style, like I advocate for in my book, you know, you can take those and directly, you know, copy paste into mappers and reducers for Hadoop workflows. And, you know, if you can do that, then you can scale it out to production levels, um, you know, a matter of hours, not, not weeks. Mm. And uh, d does anywhere in the book or like auxiliary resources, do you touch on like, okay, this is one of the pieces of the puzzle. Here's some other you know, like booby traps to look out for or other things to consider for like a true production or, or would you say it's all pretty much there in that book? How would you tackle that? So we're, we're mostly looking at the style and the kind of the big data frameworks and how to use those big data frameworks from Python. So we talk mm -hmm. about how to use PySpark and how to engage with Spark through Python, how to schedule you know, Spark jobs in the cloud using Python. Um, the same thing for Hadoop. How do you use Hadoop through Python? Um, what does that look like? What does it look like to schedule a Hadoop job in the cloud using Python? We don't talk about production level, you know, big data systems. Um, and that was a choice that we made. There was, there was interest in doing that, but I didn't think I could give it real just treatment um, in the short amount of time I had to, to work on the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, building robust big data systems um, is non-trivial and, and requires a lot of software development knowledge um, that I didn't assume going into this book. And I think that was one of the hardest parts for me writing the book was figuring out what is the, what is the, how do I get this information out to the um, people who are needing it um, without excluding anybody? And I knew if mm -hmm. I said, you have to have this software development knowledge coming in, that I was going to exclude a lot of people that I wanted to teach these skills. Mm. So um, I wanted to, to kind of lower the bar from that perspective. I think I've heard a lot from 
more experienced developers who say, hey, this book is great, but I kind of wish it started at chapter four or five. Um, and it's like, yeah, yeah, but chapters one through five aren't for you. They're for other people, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it's like you've got 25 years of experience, 30 years of experience in Python. Uh, it's crazy to think that people might have 30 years of experience in Python right now. But um, uh, yeah, the, you know, it's, it's not for you. So uh, it's for, it's really for kind of like a, you've been, you've been coding, you can, you can solve most of your problems. Um, mm -hmm. And now you really, you know, for the first time you're needing to scale your problem, your scale your solution up uh, to cloud scale or mm -hmm. anywhere in between. Right. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 always nice to have kind of like a like a path forward for like the parallel compute is all for me personally. I just think it's always kind of been this thing that's like confusing. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, like the scale that you're talking about, just even if yeah. you can have the foresight on what what something like that would look like, then then you could go self-educate. And uh, so maybe that's where like the re the real power of that is like you get to go through that whole process and there's a big mean jungle out there of things to bite you, but this yeah. will get you through part of that jungle. And yeah, I mean the good, the good news is that when you're dealing with data at that scale in industry, it's typically a team sport by that point. Yeah. So you got a buddy to, to say, Hey, you know, can you help me out? Can you show me, show yeah. me what's on here. Um, so that, you know, hopefully, hopefully you're not going into that process alone. Um, and if you are, good luck and Godspeed. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, if you, let's see, if you had to summarize the best practices in mastering large data sets, what would that framework be? So the, the thing that I find um, as a best the first best practice is just thinking about what you want to do with your data and trying to understand what your data looks like before you run any code or write any code. And, and this is, you know, this is a, this is not a new suggestion. This is kind of an age old suggestion, right? Mm -hmm. Like your coding should start on paper and then make its way to the, the, the console or the terminal or wherever you're, you know, IDE, wherever you're writing your code. Um, but you, you really do want to work, kind of out the solution and figure out you know, what is the, the best and most modular solution before I, before I go write code. Um, and part of that is figuring out how do you break down your process of what you want to do to the data um, into pieces, uh, typically functions um, that can, can modify that data. Um, and return new data or different, you know, subsets of data, right? But in, in analytics, where it's usually um, a function that's returning you know, some some smaller amount of data, right? Some insights about uh, mm. that data, um, and you can break down that that insight generation process into pieces. Um, you've got some pre-processing pieces, and then probably some modeling and you know analytics, traditional analytics pieces. Um, but breaking those down into discrete parallelizable pieces while possible um, hugely benefits you down the road, right? Because then if you've got it broken into parallelizable pieces, easy to toss it into to Spark or Hadoop and, and rock and roll once you've got big data on your hands. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, what are the principles of user modeling? User, oh, okay. So turning back a little bit. Mm -hmm. So user modeling is, 
is the idea that everything we do on the internet um, gives some indication about who we are. Um, and when I, when I did user modeling, primarily what I looked at was the, the text trails that people were leaving online uh, as they're you know, going to different message boards and, and writing posts, um, stuff on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, yada, 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 right? Different message boards. Um, and there's some overlap with that and an academic field called sociolinguistics where they, they basically say, you know, the way you talk um, reflects your, you know, social status and who you are um, from a social perspective, right? So, you know, you might be familiar, like, um, there are these British linguists who can tell what the street a person was born on based on their accent, right? Hmm. So you've, got, you've got these really finely grained, you know, ears for the, these accents. Um, you know, I, I wonder if you'd be able to do the same thing in New York City. I feel like probably not. Uh, maybe <laughs> Maybe you can't do it in London anymore either, but uh, that's, that's kind of the idea is like you can read the w words that a person is putting out into the universe and learn things about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we can learn all sorts of things, right? We can learn um, gender, age, we can narrow down profession pretty well. Um, you, can, you can estimate a person's income within about $15,000. Um, and, and all of this is, is really useful for um, marketing and, and political surveying and, and various things like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I think it's really interesting for gauging who's participating in which communities um, and how different people participate in, in different online communities. It, it gives you an insight into, I think when we, you know, as I, because when I was working in, in academia in that space, you know, there are a lot of people thinking about, you know, is, is the internet living up to the original intent of like being a democratic platform where, where everybody has a voice. And so a lot of, mm. a lot of the, the applications of that in academia is figuring out, okay, um, you know, are these, are these spaces that are existing online um, are they, you know, evenly populated with people or are people clustering into the spaces that they would, you know, is, is the online world just a, just a digital representation of the offline world or is it actually you know, contributing something greater? Right? Hmm. Based, based on your experience in that research field, would you agree that it is like a, it's the, the online representation is mirroring the offline or is it kind of like, very representative of like the um just the adopters of this new technology and so yeah. it's kind of a bias in that way or what what's kind of your insight i know that's a really open-ended question but yeah i would i would say that it's probably a mistake to think about the internet as any one thing okay people are <laughs> people are really drawn to different spaces and they go to different spaces for different purposes mm -hmm. um you know, I did quite a bit of research on, on Reddit. And one of the interesting things that you find when you talk to people who use Reddit is that people will have different accounts to do different things because they understand <laughs> yeah. that their history is, is representative of who they are, right? So I might have one account where I just talk about like, you know, 
sports and then I'll have another account where I talk about politics and then another account where I talk about knitting. Um, and you know, I might maintain these three accounts um, if I'm like a typical Reddit user. And then I might have another account that I tell my friends about and these, those other three are hidden. Right? Mm-hmm. And this is not atypical for, a, for an average Reddit user. Um, so that's like one type of interacting on the internet. But then there's the, the Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn model where it's like, I, I'm basically you know, projecting my, my offline self into the digital space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a completely different phenomenon where you know, there has to be some linkage between my offline self and my online self or else you know, one of those is going to have to give, right? Um, whereas if I can just pretend to be, or maybe not even pretend, right? If I can just indulge myself in, in all my like knitting desires on, on Reddit, um, I don't need to think too hard about, you know, how I'm, how I'm portraying myself because it's not connected to offline me. Um, hmm. so there are all these, you know, there are the interesting fundamental differences between all the platforms that people use. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the, one of the ways that we are probably limiting ourselves is we're not thinking about the broadness of the internet as a medium, right? We think about the internet as like mostly these collection of social networking sites, but we forget that it's also platforms like Zoom. Um, it's also, you know, things like, you know, New York Times Online, um, you know, any any of these platforms, it's email, it's uh, it's podcasts and, and, you know, Netflix, right? So there's, there's a lot that the internet is doing um, that, is is more than just these these message boards and i think you know message boards will always have a strong place in in our imagination of the internet just because they were there at the beginning um but i think there are so many other platforms um that are out there now so we have to really broaden the way we think about the internet hmm. yeah i i liked the uh the question that you just kind of uh uh ask there something along the lines of like where where might we be limiting ourselves with this particular technology or or mindset about the technology so i'm going to put that in my back pocket for uh, future podcast stuff because that's a great place to explore if you're if you're trying to be innovative or just to grow as a person like knowing where your blinders are on these things can be mm-hmm. huge insights behind that so yeah thanks for sharing that yeah Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you recommend that doesn't take uh, much effort, but solves like 80% of the challenge of learning to work with large data sets? So kind of like the Pareto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Pareto principle. So I think what, if you want to learn when to work with large data sets and you only want to solve 80% of the problem, um, just learn <laughs> the map part of the MapReduce workflow. Okay. Just, just learn the map part. Um, <laughs> You know, map, if they say that data pre-processing is 80% of the battle. And when we're pre-processing data, the majority of the time what we're doing is mapping data cleaning functions over our data. Um, whether, we, whether we know that we're doing that or not, we have a bunch of observations that all need to be cleaned. We build some cleaning routine and we process each one of those observations with that cleaning routine. 
pre-processing, right? Mm -hmm. um, that can be boiled down to one map operation. Um, and map operations are trivially parallelizable, which means um, that we can parallelize them just by calling parallelize on them because they don't have, they typically don't involve any state and they typically involve, um, you know, returning new values. So one value in, one value out. Um, and so that gets you huge value um, in the biggest part of your data processing workflow, uh, data cleaning. Um, and it's, it's relatively simple to wrap your head around. Um, you can probably, you can probably learn how to, you can learn the concept of map and how to do a parallel map in an afternoon, uh, pretty easily. Okay. Awesome. And, uh, to kind of invert that question a little bit, what do you think is overly difficult and something to stay away from when first learning to work with large data sets? Yeah. So if you, if you go down the path that I recommend it, what it's what I call, a, you know, a functional style, a map reduce style mm -hmm. of, of programming. Um, and it's related to, but not the same as functional programming. Um, learning functional programming properly is a nightmare if you come from a traditional programming background. Mm -hmm. I came from, you know, traditional software development background and then I decided I wanted to, you know, learn functional programming. And I, and I swear I spent you know, a month and a half trying to figure out what the, what this Lambda calculus thing is and, you know, why there are all these mathematicians hanging around and, you know, why everybody had just, you know, discarded all the syntax that I thought programming was um, and just hmm. made up their own syntax. And, you know, why couldn't I use for loops? Like why don't any of these functional languages have for loops? Um, and it, really hurts your brain <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know I, I think it's probably worth it to go through that pain at some point if you if you want to do big data processing just because it really does expand how you think about the problem mm -hmm. um, but I would say that it's 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 a universe of people who have um, all become really, really good at thinking about the world in that way through that functional paradigm. Um, and once you're in that world, it's really hard to reach back and understand what somebody who doesn't have that knowledge needs to learn those principles. And everybody does a really, really, really bad job of explaining it. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, hopefully if you, if you read my book, um, you know, it, once you go to bite off functional programming, you might have um, little hooks that you can hang ideas on, right? So you can say, oh, you know, now I understand why, you know, we're being told to do this and mastering large data sets with Python, you know, because of this functional principle here. But, um, you know, understanding those base principles is, is really unnecessary to doing the work. Um, it, when you're in a flexible and adaptable language like Python, right? And that's one of the huge benefits of Python is that mm. it's flexible and adaptable and not rigid like a functional language. Um, so. Excellent. Yeah. That uh, it's, it's always good to know where to, what guardrails you need to put up when you're starting out. So yeah. that or boundaries kind of to operate in. So thank you. Um, yeah. If you had to start over from scratch on learning how to work with big data in Python, what would you do first? Hmm. That's a good question. If I had to start over from scratch, let me rephrase that sure. a little bit um, and say, 
One of the things that I wish beginner developers spent more time doing is reading and understanding the base Python documentation. Um, there is so much good stuff in base Python and it, you know, they've got all sorts of really good examples and really great documentation. And, and being able to go through that really trains you to work with other people's code. It trains you how to communicate to other developers. Um, and then the process you learn about how the Python maintainers think about using the language, about different patterns for using the language. And a lot of those are applicable, especially if you're in you know, the Funk Tools module, if you're in Iter Tools module, if you are in um, you know, the multiprocessing module, right? All of these are really applicable to big data operations, parallelizing your operations. And they, they, these principles and the patterns there do scale. Um, but they, you know, along the way, they train you how to think um, in a more Pythonic way. Hmm. So I think it's, it's something that's really useful for um, beginning developers to do is just go through those, you know, the, those modules, go through the documentation. Um, I mean, it's important for uh, more senior developers too, right? Like I have a Python docs when I'm coding in Python open all the time. Um, mm -hmm. so you know, remembering all the use cases and all the tools is just not feasible anymore, right? Yeah. You know, we, we, we don't program in, in uh, a language where you've got seven built-ins and you have to do everything yourself. We mm -hmm. program in a language that has great um, that have languages that have great libraries, uh, great deep library support. Um, so you know, that's an advantage. The downside is you have to look everything up, but um, you know, knowing where to look, knowing how to look things up then becomes such a big skill in, in development. Hmm. Wow. That's powerful. Uh, yeah. Just, just the, the ability to ask the question and, yeah. and just have the intuition of, what, what is this question? Is this question going to get me to like my problem? I've struggled with that before too. Like what the, like, am I phrasing this right? You know, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And knowing where the answer might be already. Right. Because mm -hmm. the, I mean, the, the Python core library has been built over you know, several decades now and they've, they've built a lot of good stuff into the language. There's a lot of good stuff that's out there in the free open source software community as well. You know, the, the broader uh, extensions. Um, but if you, you know, if you start by looking at the documentation, um, you can usually get more powerful answers to your questions than you would be by browsing or asking on Stack Overflow. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one of the, one of the habits that I try to break really fast with my junior developers is over-reliance on Stack Overflow and under-reliance on documentation. Um, because hmm. there's a huge difference in understanding that you get from using the two, right? Um, you know, Stack Overflow might get you an answer to a question, but reading the documentation gets you the knowledge of the system that you're working with. Um, and that becomes really, really powerful, especially as you're using these systems over time, whether they're web apps or analytics framework libraries, and et cetera, right? The better you understand them, the better you, know, you might eventually want all of our developers to be able to contribute to these systems, to be masters of these systems. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not going to get there just by asking onesies and twosies questions to answer discrete problems. Mm. Nice. Yeah, that that's great insight. So the the next question here in, in this uh, in this thread was, uh, what would be the first tool you pick up? But it sounds like it would be documentation. Is that the the core the core library, or would there be a different 
tool that would be like the first tool you would pick up if you were starting out with this? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if there's a good um, first tool. Um, I think, you know, base, base Python has everything you need to really get started and be dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the great things about it. Uh, you can, you know, build simple web servers and, and you can, you know, do your, do your MapReduce stuff and, and, and all that goodness. Um, and yeah, I think working through the documentation and base Python and really learning what all is in there and the patterns to, to implement different things um, becomes really powerful. So yeah, probably that. Excellent. Um, so once you kind of graduate to using these other um, libraries and frameworks, I was kind of curious, what, what should be the intuition that we want to develop or the criteria that we should use when we're kind of choosing between Spark versus Dask? And I know you touched on this yeah. a little bit in your book. Yeah, I think this is really a question about how you want to think about your data. Um, Dask is, and Dask is growing really fast. So I, I don't want to say too much about it because I think my knowledge of it is probably always out of date. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm actually using it for a, a project right now. Um, and, you know, it's a really nice comprehensive solution kind of all in one. Uh, <clears throat> all in one. Um, parallelized schedule or, and it lets you work with tabular data really, really well. The, one of the problems is that your data isn't, isn't always going to be in a tabular place. And, and when you're dealing with non-tabular data, Dask has a lot less power because it is kind of designed to, to work in that you know, pandas from paradigm. Mm. Um, that makes it really powerful for a lot of data scientists who don't understand the map and reduce paradigm um, and who are used to working with tabular data. But if you don't have, if you have nested data, a lot of log data, a lot of data that's coming out of our, you know, these big data workflows, big data generation, right? We're, we're creating documents based on activity that users make. We're, you know, we're, we're storing um, requests that have headers and the headers have the content nested in them, right? Um, and you've got these nested documents and, and Dask is going to lose a lot of its power there because those nested documents don't fit as nicely into the tabular framework that Dask is based on. And so your, your workflows get a little more convoluted. You can still solve the problems, but your workflows get a little more convoluted. Whereas in, in Spark, the, the workflows are more straightforward at that point. Um, mm. But I think, you know, if you, if you, focus on Dask and you build up a really solid Dask um, skill set that's certainly valuable. Um, and the same can be said of Spark. So. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And uh, what expectations should someone set for themselves when, if they're trying to eventually monetize their newfound uh, data management skills, mm -hmm. kind of what, like, I, because I, the reason I asked is because in the pre-interview you were like six months, that's like, you know, the, the expectation, like some people actually, there's marketing yeah. going on where people are like, oh, so I was so happy when you brought it up. Like that's yeah. not realistic, but may maybe there is some insight you could share on like expectations or like, you know, yeah, just 
like yeah. how, how to monetize your skills, but it's not going to happen tomorrow if you just read a book or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think the thing to know about the, the big data space is that there are so many tools and technologies involved. Um, and you can, you have to understand so much about what's going on in order to just master one of them. Right. Mm. So, you know, we, I talk about Hadoop in the book and, and, um, you know, it's not a sexy technology anymore, but it's still hugely popular in industry. Um, you still make a lot, a lot of money as a Hadoop developer. Um, but the technology, right, Hadoop, is actually four different technologies. And so to be master of Hadoop, you have to master four different, you know, really complex you know, Java libraries um, and then be able to integrate them into, uh, you know, cluster computing environment, right, which is going to be entirely different, you know, from one shop to another, right? So, you know, Microsoft is gonna have a different um, cluster computing environment than, than Yelp, right? Um, Spotify, right? All three use Hadoop, um, but all three are gonna have completely different environments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, part of applying your Hadoop knowledge to one is gonna involve how well you can understand what their environment looks like. And, and that's not gonna be Hadoop knowledge, that's gonna be you know, traditional computer networking knowledge, right? And you're gonna have to learn all about the cloud because everything's happening in the cloud now, right? Um, and you, know, you might spend six months just trying to understand um, all of the different cloud big data technologies, right? Um, you know, I published a free ebook through Manning on just um, cloud storage and just object storage in the cloud. Um, and so you can, you can read 100 pages on just object storage. Um, and we will you know, teach you how to, uh, what object storage is and, and how to you know, build a website using just object storage, um, how to do analytics on object storage, you know, how, to, how to run Spark jobs on object storage. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, a, again, that's just a piece. It's, you know, it's an entire book just on one piece of the puzzle that would be necessary to do this big data problem. Um, I think, you know, and I guess that would bring me around to the point, which would be if you want to monetize it in the near term, um, you really need to figure out what piece that you can contribute to um, mm. and try to make a narrow contribution um, in that area um, and kind of it's going to be hard, right? Because not everybody, not everybody needs every skill set so narrowly. Um, and these, these narrow cast roles tend to be at big companies that tend to want, you know, real, real experts. Um, and so it's, it's hard to, to break in in that, in that respect. Um, but, you know, I would, I would say that if you can make, you know, a narrow contribution or get a um, kind of like a, apprentice role that would be the that would be the first step um unless you're you know starting your own thing in which case um you know you've got a lot of entrepreneurial skills that you're also relying on in addition to your technical skills so, mm -hmm. I don't, yeah cool and monetizing a business in six months is hard too so yeah <laughs> yeah i i appreciate your insight i ask uh as many of the the guests as i can kind of to wiggle wiggle that question in there and uh yeah, there's, I'm, I'm always amazed by the insight that people have, but I, I really like it when somebody 
is like, hold up. <laughs> like just the candid conversation. Like, I don't know if there's enough of that going on around like yeah. you're, you're, you're not incentivized to be like, Hey, you could do this since you're not, you know, you're selling a course on how to, you know, make money with these, with these skills in six months. And I see a lot of that marketing going on. That's actually part of why the podcast became a thing because I was so frustrated with, like, I wanted to create a resource where I was like, okay, we're going to talk with professionals that have war stories and they're going to tell us what frameworks we need to operate in. None of this, you know, marketing, uh, nonsense. Uh, yeah. you're $200 away from anyway, I'll, I'll get off my, <laughs> I think that's totally spot on. Um, and it's something I deal with. I mean, day in and day out is, you know, as I try to hire data scientists and developers, um, a lot of them are coming out of these, these boot camps, which are pretty expensive, um, with analytics, like certificates or, you know, training of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just all garbage. Um, you know, I'm not going to name names about any of these you know, programs, but, um, you know, just teaching somebody how to run some machine learning libraries doesn't make them, uh, a real data scientist doesn't make them super useful, even if they're amazing at uh, doing this, these analytics. Um, you know, when you get in an, an industry setting, um, it's a really complex mixture of skills that you need. Um, you know, and I, and I was explaining to to one of my you know kind of junior guys the other day. When you think about your um, technical expertise, I really like to think about it like a, like a triangle, right? Your, your expertise is only as good as the, the height of the triangle, but you've got like a fixed base that limits the height. You can only build so high depending on how, you, how wide your base is. So every time you want to get more depth in something, you want to be a deeper expert. You also need to think about broadening out your base and learning, you know, other technologies, right? And so if you go through one of these get rich quick boot camps they're going to give you a really narrow slice and tell you you know you're you're really good in all these things now um but but you know even if if you go through like a three-week machine learning boot camp you know you've got you've got this one vertical slice and so you can only be good in these perfectly crafted situations that that most companies don't have right you need people who have more breadth um, so they can contribute to, to actual problems that our actual customers have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, so would you say that's one of the biggest disconnects between kind of like real world land and like textbook land or like, yeah. how would you kind of categorize those two? Yeah. I mean, I think the problem was that the re- the need for data science training was recognized, uh, probably 10 years ago. Mm-hmm you know, this thing is coming, um, big tech is doing it. Everyone else is going to start. And the industries kind of the education industries rallied around this to try to train data scientists, but they couldn't at the time and they still can't pull people from industry to teach these things or help them design the curriculum (laughs) because the people who have these skills and know what needs to be done, are making really good money in industry. So they're not going to you know, take a professor's salary to, to design a curriculum. Um, hmm. And then, you know, you see this problem now in, in academia and academic AI research. Um, all the best AI faculty have left because they're getting more money to go work at a research lab. 
Um, so the quality of AI education overall is just really poor because the people who know it um, aren't sticking around. Um, and I mean, sometimes when you look at the boot camps, especially, one of the things you'll find is that the people who are teaching the courses are just people who have been through the courses. And so they don't have any experience. They just went through the course and now they're reteaching the course. Um, you hope it was developed by somebody who knows you know, kind of what they're doing and, and what they're thinking about, but it's not going to be taught by an expert. It's going to be taught by somebody who, who maybe learned it, you know, a year ago and then spent six months as a TA and uh, is now teaching the course for the second time. Right. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard, right? How do you get the experts to, to, to take time out of what they're doing and teach? Um, and, you know, not everybody is going to be, it's hard. It's not, you know, teaching is um, really, really difficult communications task. Um, the relative reward for teaching versus, you know, doing more software development or more analytics is low, right? So it's, it's hard to persuade these persuade people to do it. Um, I think, you know, for me, I find it personally rewarding, which is why I wrote the book. Um, but, you know, I think if you rely on people to find something personally rewarding to do something, you don't always end up with the top experts, right? You just end up with, you know, whomever likes it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, Man, that's a whole, that's a whole nother can of worms. Like if you really love guitar, like, you know, but are you in a position to be, you know, teaching yeah. Uh, guitar? Uh, yeah, I, I, I understand completely. Um, right. but that's, I mean, that's exactly <laughs> the like guitar education industry, right? right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you don't have, um, you don't have the, the, the top guys from major rock bands teaching guitar lessons, right? Mm -hmm. The people who teach guitar lessons are you know, guitar teaching is their career because they love guitar. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the same thing with, you know, most of our education, right? You know, um, the, the science teachers and math teachers and, you know, reading teachers who teach um, children in this country, they're not like the best scientists and the best mathematicians and the best, you know, readers or the best, uh, I guess, you know, if you, Think about gym class right they're not the best athletes um, mm -hmm. or coaches or trainers they're just the people who have the passion to do it um and who's you know who candidly whose financial situation makes sense for them to do it um, mm -hmm. you know lebron james is never going to coach you know second grade pe um yeah that's uh i don't think those thoughts have crossed my mind but i am like I'm going to have to chew on this after, <laughs> I mean, this is like, if one were to ask, like, where is kind of the education system broken? One might argue, this is the situation that we're involved with. Like you don't have access to the true experts. The incentives are kind of designed in a way where the true experts are constantly being siphoned off into places where you can't access them. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of like bridge that gap? Yeah. I don't know. There's, you bring up some really awesome points here. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks for uh, exploring this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's something this, the education piece is something that I'm, you know, really passionate about mm -hmm. Being from academia previously, you know, doing teaching there, um, you know, having the opportunity to teach, uh, you know, 
kind of elementary school children as well and, and help them on their programming journey. Um, and you know, now, you know, being in industry and working with a lot of uh, junior, you know, analytics and, and development professionals, mm-hmm. um, helping people along their careers, kind of seeing where all the gaps are and where the education system has, has failed them along the way. Um, and, you know, I, I talk to some of my colleagues and they say that, you know, they don't expect their junior developers to be able to contribute to real projects for two years. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Microsoft might send their junior developers through like nine months of internal training before they let them touch code. Oh, wow. Um, and it's, it's just like, there's so little confidence in <laughs> the, you know, the elite American education system, right? Uh, you know, we have the best uh, computer science education in the world. Um, and we still have so little confidence in the people who are coming out. And it's so hard to get them to the point where they can actually contribute. And it's, it's because there's this huge divide. Um, and hmm. it's not because the people who are learning aren't capable, you know, because they do become, you know, real useful uh, you know, professionals in, in the software development and analytics. Um, and they have a huge passion for it and they want to learn. Um, and yeah, I think we just have to, you know, there's gotta be a solution to fixing the system and, and getting, getting better resources out there to people who are hungry for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I, in the pre-interview, you had mentioned one of your three to five year goals was that you want to, uh, facilitate some data science conferences. And so I kind of wonder if there's a way to kind of align the incentives, like maybe you can't go to a college to get access to these experts, but for a fee that makes sense to get these people in a room, like maybe you can pay to have access to them. Like, is that, is that like a model that you think would work or like, how do you incentivize those people to bring, you know, bring their brain to a, a public forum like that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard too, right? Because teaching takes a lot of time and effort and it's really, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And you need, just like anything else, you need to get your reps in before you're going to be any good at it. If you just, if you just just decide, you know, I'm going to teach, uh, you know, day one, you're going to be really bad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Especially, I mean, uh, um, I taught a, a JavaScript class to like 20, 25th graders and you know getting them to do like type commands into a computer screen is is really hard especially when they know all these games on the internet they're just two clicks away from um Hmm. you know i think you know there's a huge there's you need the you need the software skill set right the analytics skill set whatever expertise you're trying to teach and then you also need the the you know what child wrangling skill sets. <laughs> and I mean, adults, you know, we're not much better, right? Yeah. Um, anybody who's ever been to a, you know, a board meeting or now like on WebEx, right? You see all these videos of, you know, people, um, you know, playing with their dogs on WebEx or like going to the bathroom while on these conference calls, right? It's like, we have like really short attention spans as human beings. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're doing our own thing. Um, and 
you know, get, like holding people's attention is really hard and it's necessary to teach to, to be able to hold people's attention because if they're not paying attention, they're not listening. If they're not listening, they can't learn. Um, hmm. I don't, yeah. yeah. I don't That's... know. It's, it's really hard. It's a really hard problem. Mm-hmm. I, don't propose, I don't propose to have any solutions. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that's uh that's good just to surface those things. So thanks for uh, sharing that. And regarding like uh, hiring people or bring them on your team, what are some of like the core attributes that you look for that will, that actually enable them? There's gotta be some like pattern between the yeah. attributes of people that are successful and the ones that are just not, I guess. So, I look a lot for curiosity and I look a lot for humility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, software development is not a place where you can bring an ego because mm. we're, we're all learning and we're all wrong so often that if, you know, even as somebody who you know, leads teams, um, I might have, have an idea of how I want the solution to be, but you know, I have to be prepared that the solution I put forth like my team is going to go out there and do an afternoon of research and, and come up with a totally better solution. Um, and I can't, I can't take that personally. Um, and they can't take it personally when I, you know, when I tell them, Hey, you know, I know you spent you know, two days kind of coming up with a solution, but it's garbage for these reasons. Um, hopefully I'll phrase it nicer than that, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, you got to leave your ego at the door and you've got to always be curious about learning new and better ways to do the things. Um, those are the two kind of uh, non-technical things that I would look for. Um, you know, de- software development, analytics, they're both team sports. You know, we can't, we can't solve really, really hard problems as just as individuals for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you get a rock star who can, you know, lock them in a room and, and have them solve really, really hard problems and you know, they turn money. But um, you know, for the most part, those people aren't out there on the job market, right? You, you can't, you can't run a business just hiring, you know, the one in a million rock stars. Um, you know, so for the rest of us, we have to do this as a team. We have to, so finding people who want to work collaborative, collaboratively is really important. Um, and then just, you know, having technical, technical competence and a desire to be, to be a strong technical contributor is, is really helpful, um, you know, in, in any area, I think, you know, I've, I've taken JavaScript front end developers and, and taught them how to do analytics and I've taken analytics people and taught them how to do front end development. Um, if you're, you know, if you've got the curiosity and the humility, you can, you can kind of, you know, and some, some aptitude and desire to code, right. You can, you can learn um, and learn the frameworks. Uh, and so, you know, I think those, those things are, are really important. Um, desire I just mentioned is, is also really important, right? You want people who want to be there and want people who want to write code. Um, you know, it is kind of funny, especially, and this is something that really just happens with like people fresh out of college, but sometimes you'll hire somebody fresh out of college and, it'll become pretty clear within like three or four weeks that they just don't want to write code. Hmm. And like they have this computer science degree, but they just don't enjoy software. And it's just, <laughs> it's just like you, you did this for four years and you never really learned that you don't enjoy writing 
software, writing code, like doing analytics. Um, why, how did you not figure that out? Um, but it, you know, it's a, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to filter for in an interview, right? Because nobody's ever going to say, oh, I, this job I'm applying for, I actually hate it. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, you know, if you, if you can find, if you can see like a spark in somebody's eye when they are talking about, you know, just boring piece of code that they wrote, uh, that's usually a really good sign. Hmm. Awesome. And you had mentioned something about reps, just there's no way around getting your reps and sets in. And so that's kind of like, you're probably not going to get all your reps and sets in on the job anyway. So having, having some sort of um, just proven track record writing like little side projects or something like that, is that helpful too? Or do you not really yeah, uh, dig I into that so. stuff? If so, if folks have a GitHub repository on their resume or a GitHub, uh, on their resume mm-hmm. I'll always go look at it uh, it takes me you know it takes me two seconds to thumb through your github account and figure out you know are you writing software on your own and I can take a look at some of the source code and see what's going on um, and it it usually it can't hurt right I'll look yeah. at it if you've got it on your resume um, even if I'm not gonna even if we decide not to call you in um, or in an interview, uh, I've still looked at your, your GitHub. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, only has the potential to help. Um, and for people who are doing maybe on an untraditional path, especially, you know, you're in the analytics space. This is a lot of people I know. Mm-hmm. You, know you came from another career. Uh, you're trying to break into, you want to do data science. You want to do analytics. Um, put together a GitHub account and have some repositories up there that shows, um, you know, some analytics that you've done, some software projects that you've done, show me a variety of stuff. Um, and that'll go, that goes a long way. Um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely helpful. Um, I look at it. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there is there like uh, something that comes to mind where when you look at a repo, you're like, oh, this is beautiful, like documentation or something, or you look at it and you're like, holy cow, like, yeah, what do they do? Write this at midnight, like half asleep or something? Like, yeah, the, what what are you? What kind of turns you on or turns you off about these? <laughs> so this is gonna sound really funny, but the the worst thing is that people will put GitHub accounts on their resumes and not have any repos. Okay. And so it's just, it's just like, so you put your, you put this thing on here and it's blank. And so you're telling me to go look at your work and you're telling me you have no experience. Um, hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the, the, the other thing I would say is um, it's really obvious what things are school projects or class projects or boot camp projects and what things are side projects. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to look at school. If, if I know you've taken a class, I'm not going to look at the code from that class and judge it because I know it's just a class assignment. I'm mm-hmm. really just looking for um, personal projects or, um, you know, one of the things I really like to see is if people have, um, kind of like these, these playgrounds where it shows they're trying to learn a bunch of new technologies. 
So, you know, show me that you're playing around with a bunch of different libraries um, in a bunch of different languages, right? Like that's, that, that shows that you care about um, code and that you're interested and curious and different ideas about software. And, and um, you know, if, you, if you're an analytics person, show me you've got R stuff and Python stuff. Um, if you're a developer, show me you've got some backend stuff and some frontend stuff, right? Give me some Java and some JavaScript. Give me some Python and some JavaScript. Um, you know, show me, show me a little diversity um, and, you know, curiosity in, in the profile. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as much looking at, you know, code standards because I, you know, most of these projects I assume are just scratch unless you're developing like a, for an open source software project, which is, mm -hmm. you know, that's another level up, right? Because if you, you're contributing to an open source software project, that's like a, it's like a second job. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for your insight. I'm always prying for, uh, you know, just like, I think that right there just delivers a lot of value for people that are like, how do I break in? Yeah. Well, make sure that your curve appeal, make sure that you have some sort of curve appeal and it's not right. an empty, uh, that's, <laughs> that's excellent. <laughs> the, the empty repo is just great, right? Cause nobody, <laughs> or the empty account is great. Like nobody would ever submit an empty resume to a job and expect yeah. a call, right? But these people do, they put empty GitHub accounts on their resumes. And, you know, like I said, every single resume I get, I will click on the GitHub account if mm -hmm. you've got one listed. Um, not many people do, so it's not that many clicks. Um, but, it, you know, it takes two seconds. And if it's empty, it's just like, okay, no, like you didn't take the time, you didn't take the time <laughs> to fill out the form. Um, yeah, you didn't, that's goofy. Like, it's funny. <laughs> what, what would you say is your biggest lesson learned from working as a full stack developer? interesting um and freelance nonetheless right yeah freelance i was a freelancer um so the biggest lessons learned from my time freelancing were all customer relations related okay free, freelancing is all just about um maintaining and building on those customer relationships right because you, mm -hmm. you'll have a couple customer relationships that really um they're really kind of your core of your business um, and then other stuff that you're trying to get into that, you know, core of your business piece. Mm -hmm. Um, I think from working full stack, one of the things that I really tell, I tell my full stack development teams now is always to go from the use case back. Um, so as you know, we, as engineers, we like to think about like the perfect data structure, right? And it's like, this is the data, this is what it is, this is how it should be represented. Um, but I like to have my folks go from the use case back to the underlying structure. So mm. you know, how should the data be on the front end? What are the calls that we wanna make to the back end to get that data? And then that let that drive how we're storing data and kind of let that be the workflow. So let the demands flow from the users all the way back to the bottom of the stack, um, even to the point where, you know, the use cases that we want to enable should drive the technologies that we use, which then drive the data structures that we use. Um, hmm. That's powerful. And, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's the biggest thing is that, you know, when you draw this, when you draw the stack, it goes bottom up, but when you build the stack, you go top down. Mm -hmm. uh, because the, you want to make the capabilities that you're providing your customers the first priority. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I guess that's, that's what I would say is the biggest first full stack development piece. Awesome. Yeah. That's uh, I just reflect on my own projects at work and I see maybe in some circumstances, the, the error of my, of my ways as a, an engineer, you know, trying to make these uh, Holy grail data sets and stuff, but it's the customer without them. You have, you have no commerce. So uh, right. it might make sense to start, you know, from their point of view. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, the, I mean, that's always the hardest part is putting yourself like as um, you know, toggling between, okay, what is, what does the customer want? And then what does that mean for the software? Right. Mm. That's, that's, that's the whole, that's the hardest piece um, of the whole problem. So. Translating the, the business requirements into the, the actual software. Is yeah. that okay? Into, into like architecture and software and, and communications and, and all that stuff. Right. Hmm. Uh, excellent. That's, that's an excellent skill to uh, try and demonstrate somehow on your resume. It sounds like. Being yeah. Able to that. Good, good luck. Right? Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. A, Mm-hmm. Uh, what topics or subject matter experts would you like to have at your future data science seminars? Hmm. I, so I have a, b- a background in natural language processing and text analytics. So I'll listen to people talk about text and language all day long. Um, I mean, we, we talked at length about user modeling in this, you know, in this podcast and, um, you know, that's still a really big passion area of mine. Love to love to hear people talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that isn't getting talked about enough is what comes next in in analytics. Um, so there was there was a lot of conversation in the natural language processing community maybe five or six years ago that you know we saw people who had been in the community for a while and had been doing language processing for a while saw that deep learning was eventually going to kind of reach a peak as far as what it could provide from a value perspective. Um, Hmm. And, you know, I would say it's 2020 by 2021, we'll probably be at that peak, right? The progress in deep learning has slowed down substantially from where we were 2017, 2018. Um, and I think it's, it's really time to focus on what comes, what comes next and what should, you know, do we have to go back to the linguistic fundamentals of language and how do we incorporate those into, you know, either these deep learning models or traditional probabilistic models or, um, non-parametric models or what, what have you, right? But what is the, what is the next step? Because we recognize that. With the, with the approaches that we have now, throwing more language and you know, more deeper networks at these problems is not gonna get us to a place where we wanna be in language processing and natural language understanding and, and text generation. It's not gonna solve the problems. Um, hmm. so. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I guess, I don't, I don't understand the landscape enough to really um, add, add uh, on to that. It's, it sounds like I, I had no idea that there was like some sort of limitation with like, we, we kind of learned about all the capabilities. There's not really innovation going on in this space. Yeah. So uh, you kind of caught me off guard with that whole thing. So, yeah. Sorry. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I can, I can back up a little bit and give some context. Maybe that mm-hmm. would help. 
Um, so, I mean, nat natural language processing as a field, um, you know, stretches, uh, on, I mean, almost back to the beginning of the, the compute computing, right? Like if you, if you imagine, um, you know, Alan Turing came up with the idea that, you know, if you could fool a computer, um, you know, you, you could create AI, right? So, um, natural language understanding has always been this kind of holy grail of, of software development and, and AI. Um, and we've been, we've been working on it in some form or another, um, you know, since sixties and seventies, um, you know, they've, they've had natural language translation systems in production since, um, the late seventies and eighties. Um, and they've been using a variety of methods, mostly probabilistic methods, but some, you know, Brock, you know, just pure brute force computational methods, some you know, kind of aparametric or non-parametric methods. Um, and this is all happening at the same time that computing technology is advancing really rapidly, right? So you can't understand what's going on in the space without understanding what's going on in computing in, in general. And then, you know, fast forward to early 2000s, um, you've got the rise of the internet, people are dumping tons of text online, right, talking more than ever online, um, you know, news outlets are all moving online, um, all the internet is being organized by Google um, and Wikipedia, and you know, then maybe 2007 or eight, you start to see the, you know, the huge deep learning movement really kick off um, because compute power is, is cheap enough that you can leverage it um, to just kind of brute force your way through some of the problems that, you know, previously required um, more thought, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, not, not that deep learning doesn't require thinking, but um, it's, you know, it's certainly not as, it's certainly less theoretical than, than some of the other approaches that used to be taken. Um, and, you know, the, the work that NVIDIA is doing and, and AMD are doing to produce, you know, these really high powered, um, you know, GPUs to, you know, optimize for deep learning um, have been, um, amazingly influential in, in what we can do from a language analytics perspective from an AI perspective because you can just you can churn through so much more data um, and use that data to learn so much more than you would have been able to you know in the early 2000s let alone in the 70s and 80s but people who have been in the industry for a while um, have seen these kind of leaps before right because um, that's, that's how innovation works. You, 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 you have, uh, uh, a spike of innovation and then, you know, you kind of reach the max of that innovation, right? Like, uh, if you think about, um, cars, right. When they first came out, they were, they were hugely innovative. Um, but you know, since we, you know, closed the roofs, you know, they're not fundamentally different than like, um, you know, the model T, right. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's better, it's safer. Um, but it's not fundamentally different. And the question is like, how do we make that next leap? Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, what does that look like? Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about natural language processing and natural language analytics, there's a lot of, you know, 
we think about it as a huge productivity boost to um, what it would what it would do to knowledge workers and the economy and around knowledge workers. Um, you know, one of the things I try to do every day as somebody who works in analytics delivery is is augment the ability of, of really smart, really highly trained knowledge workers to put more knowledge at their fingertips faster, um, so that they can make the really hard you know, judgments that they're, that they're trained to do, right? So what, what happens to um, law as an industry when you know, it, a lawyer can consume um, an entirely new set of case law uh, in, in an afternoon instead of you know, weeks or months, however long it takes, right? I'm not a mm-hmm. lot of expert on law. I don't know how long their processes are, but they all seem tired, right? So I, I think <laughs> lawyers are working hard. Yeah. Um, right. Like what happens, um, you know, what happens to these, uh, these other knowledge workers when you can you supercharge their abilities. Hmm. Um, and you know, when, when you think about natural language processing, right, you think about, I can summarize and, and translate all of this information, you know, no matter how large of a document set I have and provide the insights from that data, from those documents to a knowledge worker. Um, so, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're supercharging salespeople with the knowledge about customers who are coming in the doors, but maybe you're supercharging, um, you know, teachers with knowledge about how their students best learn and the material so that they can you know, cross-reference and get the material to the students in the way that they can best learn. Right? Um, hmm. Maybe you're supercharging, you know, right? Like I said, lawyers, right? Students, um, you know, huge you know we expect huge productivity boosts um you'd also expect like you could um improve diplomacy right if you have um on demand translation from any language to another but not only does it translate it it takes you know the meaning of what you said and makes it as you know polite as possible right Mm. or or it's picking up on the, the sociolinguistic cues and the pragmatic cues and, and formatting it, not just in a, in a rote sense, but in, you know, uh, uh, what would you say if you were, um, if you were trying to diffuse a hostile situation sense, right? And it can imbue your speech with that as well. Um, so, you know, just making, making those intercultural com- communications um, so much more productive, right? And this is kind of what we would hope to get out of language analytics if we could if we could really solve the problem um but it's a really hard problem to solve and i think you know one of the things we're realizing as a community is that deep learning has kind of gotten us where it's gotten us and we don't think it's going to get us farther um, Mm. towards these solutions um you know it's it's really good for for solving these problems to the you know it's the best way we have to solve these problems now really 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 useful Mm-hmm. but it's it's never going to be that that full solution if it's possible to get to that full solution which it might not be but. right yeah so if i'm hearing you correctly here it's almost like our artificial intelligence is still kind of uh i mean it's 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 kind of dumb still <laughs> like is that <laughs> yeah i mean it's like you know it's a it, it that's what i'm getting like it's not actual like humans still are like their computing power in their brain is like 
Oh yeah. It's far, super far superior. So I, I mean, think about, um, if you have an Alexa or a Google home or, mm-hmm. a, you know, one of the Facebook, I forget what Facebook's it's called. Right. But those have a natural language understanding layer on them that will listen to what you're saying and translate it into text internally. Mm-hmm. But then what they have is a rules engine that just looks at what you said and maps it to some rules. Right. And that's not sophisticated. That's just um, a lookup table. Right. Mm-hmm. A function on the other end. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And it says like, you know, he asked what the weather is like run the function that says what the weather is. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's not rocket science. That's every web application ever. Uh, but instead of an HTTP request, it's a uh, voice command, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so our AI is, is you know, not sophisticated. We just have the computing power to in- input this stuff in um, small devices that sit in every corner of our home or, you know, in our car dashboards or in our phones, right? Um, hmm. The proliferation of this rudimentary technology, I think, make- makes it seem um more sophisticated than it is but it's it's really just um the exponential growth of computing power making it easy to fit this stuff into smaller and smaller spaces so Mm. it's it's technology that we've had for a while we can just shove it into small spaces Hmm. cool yeah that thanks for thanks for kind of uh putting some color on on that whole thing i think that was at least for me that was really helpful so thanks for that yeah i mean i'm always happy to talk about it so (laughs) Awesome. My nerding out. Yeah. Heck yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is it in your opinion? Uh, what is it going to take to get K through 12 to widely adopt programming in their educational materials? I know I've seen Colorado, for example, do this a little bit, but I, I don't know if I'd call it widespread adoption. So do you have any insight on like the big domino that we could knock over? Cause it's, it seems like it would make a lot of sense that if you, you'd just be able to add more value if you started sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely right. Um, I think you just have to fit it in. I mean, it's just gotta be something that you, you add in. I know some places are trying to substitute it, substitute languages with like adding, you know, you can learn Java instead of learning French, right. Or Spanish or what have you. Mm-hmm. That to me strikes like, seems like a really bad idea. Um, if we think it's important for people to learn, um, you just need to offer it um, or just need to mandate it. And I think the, the big question is what is, I mean, what's the point of learning coding? I mean, are you trying to get people to become software developers? No, you're trying to get people to understand information systems. So what is it that they need to learn? Um, they don't necessarily, I mean, they should write some code, but they don't necessarily need to be expert software developers by the end of their you know, K-12 education. Mm-hmm. But they should understand that, you know, these information systems communicate to one another and that, um, you know, you've got databases that have software running on top of them that you know, s- sit on servers that, you know, talk to each other. And, you know, when I send a message with my phone, it's going over you know, the internet and it hits another server and that server asks a bunch of other servers for more data information, right? Um, the ability to like break down, break down, or kind of see through these systems. So I think of it 
I would imagine it like less like, I would imagine it's probably less like, it looks less like math and more like, almost like health class, right? Mm. Where it's like, you need to learn, I mean, you need to learn a little bit about how things are structured, um, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be critical to everyone's understanding, but it is, you know, it is really helpful if you understand um, how, you know, websites communicate because it, it gets rid of, it gets rid of fears like, um, you know, I think of the paranoia that some people still have around things like um, online banking or online voting or, or, or areas like that, right? And I mean, this, this new generation is probably not gonna have any of those paranoias because, um, you know, they're coming up with, you know, it's digital natives, but there's, there's a balance that you need to draw between adoption and security. And I don't think people are being trained to make that judgment. I think they're just being trained to accept or reject. Maybe that's hmm. what I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, you think about, you think about all these social media campaigns, right? Which are post uh, before and after picture of yourself so that, you know, people can train AI models on them uh, to do age, you know, projections or um you think about how tiktok the the app that all um like everyone under 15 is using um is is got back doors in it so that the chinese uh you know state can just monitor everybody's activity all the time um you know is it good for our society if is it good for a free society if you have a totalitarian society monitoring all of your activity 24 7. probably not right um you know yeah <laughs> um i i don't know how you i mean you, i don't know how you educate um children to make those assessments right because kids aren't going to want to read cybersecurity reports um for you know all the apps they download right mm -hmm. um but you know I think it's, you know, you've got to, you got to try something, right? Because you have to, you have to, we have an obligation as, as a democracy to produce a population that can, you know, be educated and participate in our society. Mm -hmm. um, and I think being computationally literate, um, whatever that means is just as important as it is to be like media literate and just as important as to be, actual literate right mm -hmm. hmm. i i wonder if uh along the li the literacy lines there's a there's a lot of talk about data literacy as well and so i kind of wonder if the whole security talk is kind of part of that yeah literacy or but yeah integrating that into like k through 12 and you know even even the adults like they're like you said they're just attention spans are so tiny like how do you yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but yeah, it makes and, sense to be I mean, more literate with this. 
and statistical literacy is a huge challenge too, right? Sure. Data literacy is, you know, and we have hard, we have a hard time with that with, you know, seasoned professionals or, um, you know, you think about anyone who works in an in industry understands how hard it is to communicate data-driven insights to their management teams and their management teams are like really highly skilled professional leaders um, who have you know a lot of financial incentive to do the right things um, and it's it's you know it's not easy all the time to, sh to sh explain what the right thing is to do hmm. Hmm. so yeah it's, well, these are again these are really hard problems right that we can only you know kind of chip away at mm -hmm. yeah uh, I, I was curious uh, in the pre-interview you had mentioned uh, an open source project you're, that that really gets your attention is Arango DB, yeah. and I was wondering like what aspects of that were, uh, yeah, really yeah, caught your so attention. Arango is a it's a multi-model database that allows you to do, and you know we're just jumping from like super nerdy area to super nerdy <laughs> area, right? Like we're we're talking about like a database that has multiple different structures of data. Okay. Um, and so it's, if you think about a traditional document store, like MongoDB is the one most of you are going to be familiar with, you store data as JSON documents. Um, that has a lot of advantages because we don't have to, we don't have to prescribe very much about our data when we're storing it. Um, so this is why it's become really popular in kind of the web 2.0 area era is because I can accept all this different user input. Um, and store it in the same spot. Um, so I don't have to know the content of a tweet or a post um, before I know to store it. So I can accept posts with pictures and I can accept posts with videos and I accept text posts, excuse me, all um, in the same database, in the same data collection. What um, Arango does is it merges that with a, another popular type of database, which is growing it's called a graph database and graph databases connect data um, through like links of, of other data um, so you know it, it there might be a data element we can imagine it's you know JT is talking to Ben right um, and then you know it Ben you're linked to data about yourself right um, and I'm linked to the data about me um, and the cool thing about that is you can then search those graphs and you could say, you know, find me all conversations that happen between two people with that brown hair. Um, and it can do all those searches. Mm. It says, you know, find me. Um, Wikipedia is a really great, I'll just pivot for a second. Wikipedia is a really great example of this because they've got, uh, it's called w DBpedia or Wiki database or something. It's got some name, but there's a, there's a database underlying Wikipedia that's got all the um, all the information that you see kind of in the side tables there. Mm -hmm. um, so you can say, you know, show me all the people who, show me the mothers of all the people who were born on February 16th. Um, and it'll just go through that query and, and run it. And, hmm. You know, you could say, show me the, the nationalities of all the mothers of the people who were born on February 16th, right? And it'll traverse those, those nodes to find that data. And so it's really, really powerful when you can ingest documents and then add links to them 
um, after the fact. So I don't have to link them at the time that I'm ingesting them. I don't need to know that they're connected. I can add those connections later on. And so if I'm working in a really fast-paced environment and I don't necessarily know what all my use cases are going to be, but I know that I have a need for these complex graph queries down the road, um, I can make those later. And that's super powerful when you're trying to answer really, really hard questions and um, questions that you don't necessarily know that you'll have. Um, you know, one of the problems that is really hmm. popular in the space that I work in is that, you know, we'll gather data and then um, our, our customers will have a new question, right? And, and it's like, okay, we know that the, the data could answer that question, but in its current, you know, your data is in a standard Postgres database. Like you can't query your data like that, right? It's in a SQL database. It just doesn't work. Um, it was designed for th these like 17 operations and that's it. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> we have to re-engineer the whole thing to solve these problems. Um, you know, this way we just write um, a little analytic that goes over and can make all those connections based on, you know, probabilistic approaches or, or what have you. Um, we get all these new links and then we traverse some paths and we can get the answer. So really, really powerful well, technology. And it, I guess it scales uh, as big as you want as well. Yep. Yep. Scalable, mm -hmm. uh, cloud native. Um, yeah. Really cool technology. Wow. Yeah. That, uh, I, I was digging into it. it. They, they have a free course that you can take if you put in your email and stuff. So I sent that out to the Facebook group, uh, telling them like, Hey, you guys got to check this out. So awesome. yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm always on the hunt for, uh, interesting things like this and, um, yeah, deliver it to the masses. So good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, um, I actually just talked to the Arango guys, some guys over at Arango yesterday. We're talking about knowledge graphs, um, and how you can use Arango as a knowledge graph store. Hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's really powerful in um, knowledge graph survey. You know, it's a technology that's been around for a while, but they, you know, probably 10 years or so. Uh, Google is most famous for theirs, um, but everybody's starting to build them. You know, Uber, Airbnb, Goldman Sachs, um, you know, anybody who has complex corporate data environment that they're trying to organize. Um, and yeah, it's cool emerging area technology. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I was curious, uh, how do you optimize or how do you ensure your sleep is optimized? Oh yeah. So in the pre, in the pre, uh, in the pre interview, I mentioned that uh, sleep was one of the most important things, right? Mm -hmm. Got to get your, however many hours you need. Um, for me, it's like, I only need seven hours, but if I get six and a half hours, I'm a zombie. Um, <laughs> and, and it's, I'm not joking at all, right? Like uh -huh. if I don't get if I don't get the exact amount of sleep I need. If I sleep any more or any less, I'm done. Um, hmm. And yeah, so I mean, I I think you know, getting sleep, listening to your body, super important. I don't know if I do anything. I probably don't do it as well as I should. Um, recently, I've been trying to cut back on on caffeine in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I let myself drink as much coffee as I want up until you know eleven, um, and then I'll switch over to tea. Um, you know, kind of decaffeinated teas, herbal teas, um, and, and try to do, you know, I'm, I'm a hot water addict, so I need to drink hot water all through the day, but, um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, so that's, that, and that's the big, it's a big thing. Um, and then just, you know, try and, you know, one of the, 
one of the hardest things is, you know, letting everything go at the end of the day. I'm sure, you know, a lot of your audience is familiar with this. You know, developers have a really hard time. We're famous for like, you know, writing code in our sleep, right? It's like you've mm-hmm. got the numbers like whirling around in your head and you're like <laughs> functions and classes and, um, you know, trying to find a way to let that all go, whether it's, um, you know, whatever the, your way of decompressing is. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that if I like sit in, sit in bed and like read on the Kindle really dark, it'll help me like fall. It'll keep my attention because I'm reading whatever it is I'm reading. But then since it's so dark, your eyes will start to, to go. Um, and that'll, that'll put you to sleep and, you know, keeps your mind from wandering too much. So hmm. Cool. I think it's, you know, I don't know if there's a solution, right? Yeah. Um, and everybody's sleep situation is different. I know. I'm sure now, um, you know, mid coronavirus scare, everybody's got pretty high anxiety levels. So uh, people are probably trying different things to fall asleep. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely important. I think, I think there's uh, definitely some actionable things in there, just making sure that you have a good environment to kind of start to go to sleep and that whole decompression thing knowing your body, uh, and caffeine, for example, just, you know, that, that, uh, substance can mess with you and yeah, just being in touch with your body, you know, like, okay, I don't, I don't do that. I it might sound fundamental, but I'm, I don't know what it is, but the more that I do these podcasts and stuff, I kind of, I really get attracted to the fundamental stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. I needed that reminder. Thank you. You know, like yeah. we need these reminders all the time. So I really appreciate your insight on that. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, for me, it becomes really obvious um, when I don't get it because then I'm, I'm much less productive during the day. Yeah. And if you are, um, I mean, if you are one of these people uh, who tries to, you know, pack their days pretty, pretty full with, with activities, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's work or side projects or side hustle, um, family, kid time, um, you know, you, you don't, you don't have a lot of energy to spare. You need all of it. Right. So if you're, if you're even at 85% because you missed some of your sleep, you notice. Yeah. Yeah. High performance get, if you want high performance, get good sleep. I love it. Uh, what book are you most excited to write next? If you had to kind of like, yeah. So, so right now I'm actually writing a book on, um, sport analytics Okay. Uh, it's kind of a detour from what I what I would normally write. Um, it's a it's a it's a it's a history of sport analytics um, with some underlying theory on kind of game theory and decision theory, as well as probability theory and uh, our introduction to our programming as well. So it's, you know, history of sport analytics, decision theory, probability theory, and introduction to our programming. So kind of all rolled into one book. Um, I think that's like my, uh, it's like my, um, what, like a beach read, my beach write. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not as, as mentally intensive as, as writing a book on functional programming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the next, after this, the next book I, I want to write is, uh, um, I want to write something on the overlap between language, computation, and psychology. 
where there's a huge, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, right, where um, there was this idea at the very beginning that you could, um, if you could create an AI that could understand human speech, you know, then you would create you know, AI, right? That's, that would be the marker of intelligent AI, mm -hmm. um, the Turing test. And, and one, of the, one of the pieces of software that they thought first beat the Turing test was uh, actually a chatbot that um, pretended to be a therapist and would just kind of, you know, ask you questions about your, your mental state and your life. Um, mm -hmm. and so there's this long overlap between language and psychology um, all the way forward to, you know, 2016 and Cambridge Analytica and you know, some of the user modeling work that I've done, right, where you're modeling people's psychological states based on text they say, right? Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's non-computational research into how people talk based on underlying psychology, um, how different, you know, words have different impacts on, on people's mental states. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting questions to explore there. Um, and, uh, for me, I think it'd be, you know, it's something I've thought a lot about, um, something I would want to read. So I figure that's something I would want to write. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I know in the seven habits of highly effective people, they talk about the words you use, like how powerful they really are. I'm just getting like the fundamentals like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Like don't be, you know, negative, negative Nancy all the time. Otherwise you're just gonna have a dark cloud over you. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, uh, I think about it often too, like the language that I use, just the internal conversations and, um, it just, it makes a lot of difference between like, I can do this or, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, just, it really sets the ball in motion, whatever direction you go. And that mm -hmm. whole, that whole, like, uh, um, Henry Ford thing, like whatever you, you think, uh, is something along, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like, like, if you think you can, then you can, and if right. you can't, then it's just your, it all starts up there in, in the language that you use. So super powerful yeah. stuff. And you think about, um, like golfers, right? Professional golfers are famous for, for hiring psychologists that just train them to have a different internal monologue. Um, okay. Because hmm. they just like, you know, you're walking around this golf course all day long and, and every time you make a shot, all you think about is how you could have made it better. Um, hmm. And that's just the most counterproductive thing in the world. Um, <laughs> and so they, and it, it's difficult, right? I yeah. Mean, lay people like us, you know, who just let our minds like run around all crazy, like we've got no shot, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, that sounds like a, a really cool book. And since you're passionate about it, I'm sure you'll have a, a, a lot of um, fun writing that. And then people will also enjoy that too. Cause that's, yeah, hopefully, that's a hot yeah. topic for, for a human performance. It sounds like too. So yeah, I know we're, we're over on time a little bit. Um, maybe I can just ask a handful of uh, uh, kind of closing questions here. Yeah, let's go. Okay. Awesome. So um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think I've re received a lot of advice um, in my life. I think the most, the biggest way that I l have learned what to do is by watching other people. Mm. Um, and so I would, I would maybe just 
I would maybe just turn that around and say, um, you know, if I was to pass along one piece of advice, what I would say is find someone who does something that you admire um, and figure out what it is that you admire about what, what they do, right? So whether that's in your, in your personal life or in your work life or in professional life, um, you know, it, it helps if it's somebody you can observe regularly, but if it's not, you know, that's fine too, right? If you wanna, if you wanna pick, um, you know, someone that you don't know personally, that's fine. Um, but figure out what it is that you admire and try to try to um, try to adopt that one thing, right? And that's something I've done a lot with um, a lot of my bosses over my career, and I, I try to soak up all the good things that that every manager that I've ever had has has. You know, everybody's got one good thing. Try to steal it. And, you know, make yourself a little better. Mm, that's really cool. Um, what are your favorite learning resources for programming cloud computing? Like if you had to yeah. pick like top three or something like that? Yeah. I mean, so I read documentation, uh, cause that's the best way to learn. Right. So go straight to the source. Um, mm -hmm. I would say definitely read, um, the docs for, um, whichever cloud computing service that you're going to be using. So if you're on AWS, or read the AWS documentation for S3 and EMR and tools like that. And if you're going to be in Azure, um, I think it's Azure Blob Storage, and um, I can't remember what their what their uh, cluster computing uh, dispatcher service is. Um, but they, you know, both both have great documentation. Um, the same thing goes for your frameworks, right? So go straight to the source when it comes to um, Apache Spark and Apache Hadoop, um, and go read. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other thing is, um, I, I'm, I think there's value in, in books as well. Um, so if, if there's something you are interested in learning about, kind of poke around and see, um, what the, what the most, probably the most popular books are for the thing that you're, that you're interested in and, and go, go read that book. Um, a lot of the times what the book provides is somebody who has, you want to make sure it's a book by a well-respected publisher, not because the publishing company necessarily adds a ton of value, but because people who work with publishers tend to be forced to think out what they want to say really thoroughly because they have people who are critiquing what they're saying. Um, mm -hmm. And some of, the, some of the publishers do this and some don't. So you wanna find the ones that do um, because they'll have thought through how to teach the material more than somebody else who might just kind of run you through an example. Mm -hmm. um, which now is something you can get from a blog post. Um, so don't spend your money on that. Um, spend your money on, on somebody who's, who's really taking their time to think through what am I teaching? How am I gonna teach it? Um, how am I going to make it the most successful I can for the reader? Awesome. Yeah, I, I can really appreciate that framework. Life's too short to uh, use a uh, crappy uh, training material. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> Have, having a way to vet those is, thank you for sharing that. Um, what is, uh, regarding like non-technical books, I guess, what is like the most important book we, you think we should read in 2020? Hmm. The most important book we should read in 2020. Um, I'm trying to think back over 
the books that I've read recently. Um, I want to say, so I'm a big, when I was younger, I used to read a lot of, a lot of philosophy books. Um, and so my first instinct was to say, you know, I, I would say read, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations or read, um, you know, read um, some, you know, John Stuart Mill or, or something like that. Right. Um, but I, I almost think the, the things that we need are you know, less abstract than that. You, you almost want something more direct, um, you know, and it, and it might be as, as simple as, um, um, I don't know who's a good, who's a good person to recommend. Um, you know, I think Michael Pollan, Michael Pollan has some books on food that are really simple. Um, you know, he's got one book, I think that's just, it's just like a hundred rules about food and they're all, it's all the same rule, just said a hundred different ways. Um, and you can read it in, you know, depending on how fast you read, you know, 30 minutes, three hours, somewhere in that range. Okay. Um, because you realize that this is the same rule. So I'm just going to kind of skim. <laughs> You're not yeah. reading super closely. Um, but, you know, eating is a big part of what we do in like, you know, Western society. Right. Um, and I think if you, you know, you structure, you structure your life around it. And if we think back to the same principle, like, you know, sleep is really important. Well, food is really important too. It's, you know, it's kind of energy for everything that we do. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of going to the vending machine and like getting Skittles just like anybody else, but, uh, I should probably stop that. <laughs> uh, probably make me a better human, but you know. Yeah. I, I love it. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, food and sleep. I mean, just getting back to the fundamentals. If you, yeah, if you plan on living, down, right? say what? Yeah. Boil, boil it, down. it down. And yeah, that's awesome, man. So I, um, like, I mean, I like to think about like, you know, how would I make like my dog as high performance as possible? It's <laughs> like all he, all he wants to do is sleep and eat and like go play ball. So right. What should I do is like probably sleep, probably eat, like get a little bit of exercise, but like mostly sleep and eat. Yeah. That's, and that's one happy dog right there. If, if yeah. he can do that. So <laughs> awesome. Uh, what message we've opened up all these cans of worms, uh, all these different topics and whatnot. What is the message you want to leave the audience with, um, after, after everything here that we've talked about? Yeah. So, um, the, the core idea that I want to promote in, in the book is this, you know, functional style of programming, right. Which is to say that there are, um, there are really good things that happen to the way you develop software when you try to minimize the amount of state changes that you make. Um, and for analytics professionals, the biggest benefit is that it allows you to scale your work up um, pretty trivially. So you can take uh, the code that you write for your prototype solution and scale it all the way up to your prototype, your, proto your production solution very rapidly. Uh, that becomes a really powerful tool 
if you have to work in a fast-paced you know, prototyping production workflow. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, what does the audience need to do immediately after listening to the show? What's the call to action? Where do they go connect with you? Uh, you I mean, if you connect with me, I have a, I have a website, jtwallahan.com. You can, uh, of course, go buy my book. That's at, uh, at manning.com. Um, and yeah, those are the, those would be the two things I'd recommend go doing. Awesome. Yeah. We'll make sure they got links to all those resources and JT, this has been a great experience. Thanks for letting me borrow your brain here for the last uh, hour and 45 minutes. It looks like now. So yeah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.